0: before I get started, I want to say thank you to everybody for your prayers, words of encouragement and especially the food <laughs> over the past few weeks. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. On a day sometime after Jesus had been tested by Satan to try and reveal some human flaw in the one who is both man and God, the Son of Man sat down on a mountaintop to teach his disciples. In St. Matthew's Gospel account, this is the first recorded public discourse given by the Master to his disciples. The teachings in the Sermon on the Mount have rightly influenced much of Christian understanding of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. And even many who have never accepted Christ as their Lord esteem the moral teachings in the sermon as key values to be lived and promoted. Matthew records a series of nine blessings referred to as the Beatitudes at the very beginning of the sermon. If the sermon is a key teaching on the practical side of being a disciple of Jesus, then the Beatitudes must be seen as the core of the sermon the place from which the rest of Jesus' practical and moral teaching extend. The sermon tells us how to live as disciples. The Beatitudes tell us why these sometimes difficult teachings lead us to the better portion and the pleasure of, the, of our Father. What is it then to be blessed? The modern English dictionary has several definitions for the word bless. In modern usage, bless can mean to invoke divine favor upon someone, to express reverence for God, to express gratitude for an act or a gift. The modern definition is definitely tinged with a deep historic embedding of Christian thought in the formation of the modern language. In Jesus' day, a blessing was a word of acceptance, a proclamation that the person doing the blessing stood behind the person being blessed. In the days of the patriarchs, the rights to rule over the household were conferred through blessing. And this concept plays a significant part in the foundation of Israel as a people when Isaac unknowingly blessed Jacob instead of his firstborn, Esau. It is also worth noting that the Greek word makarios, which is translated here as blessed, is typically meant in the sense of to be fortunate, to be happy, as opposed to denoting divine favor. It can also be used to mean to be envied, In this way, we can understand that the Beatitudes as attributes or qualities which the disciples of Jesus are to yearn to express if they do not already express them. I see six of these qualities as permanent attributes of kingdom citizens. To be poor in spirit, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, and to be peacemakers. There are also three qualities which seem to me To be temporal and which will be removed when the kingdom comes in its fullness to restore the creation to what the Creator intended. Mourners will be comforted, and mourning will cease. The persecuted will possess the kingdom of heaven, and persecutions will come to an end. Finally, those reviled for the sake of the gospel will rejoice to be counted like the prophets, and the revilers will be made to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. To be perfectly clear, I do not want to sound like the Beatitudes are a checklist of how I should act or how I should suffer in order to be accepted into the kingdom. I do not think that every Christian will reach perfection on earth in all of these areas. However, I do hear Jesus telling us that these are behaviors and mindsets which we should earnestly aspire to and strive to move the ball forward whenever we are given the opportunity to live out the Beatitudes. Starting next week, I will be teaching an eight-week course well, an eight-week class during the 9 o'clock hour on the Beatitudes and understanding the moral teachings of the Gospel in light of them. Each week we will look at one of the qualities of the Blessed and see how Jesus' earthly ministry expands on what being blessed means. Today I will continue by looking at in detail at the first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the six permanent or eternal qualities that kingdom citizens are happy or fortunate if they possess and should earnestly desire to seek to possess if they do not. A kingdom citizen is to never stop seeking after this state, and once they possess it, they are never to give it up. As I previously asked what it means to be blessed, I now ask what does it mean to be poor? Jesus says later in Matthew that you always have the poor with you. In the Mosaic Law, God tells Israel not to show partiality on account of someone's wealth or lack thereof, saying, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. So from the word of God and two witnesses, the word made flesh and the word given as law, we know that there will always be poor people and that we are to treat them with the same personal dignity as someone who is wealthy. Jesus' statements are clearly about the monetarily poor from the context of Matthew 26:11, and it is probably safe to say that the law is primarily referring to the monetarily poor as well. But is that what Jesus means in Matthew 5, verse 3? Do the monetarily poor possess the kingdom of God because they are without wealth? Are they in a state of being blessed in this way? If you've ever encountered impoverished people who talk about money-making schemes or who have placed playing the lottery in such esteem that buying a ticket becomes a near discipline for their life, then it would be hard to think this way. The monetarily poor are deserving of our care, help, and respect because they are fellow bearers of the image of God, not to mention the specific commands throughout Scripture to render these things. They are not, however, in possession of the kingdom of God solely based on their lack of wealth. When Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, he goes on to add, In spirit, making this statement clearly not about monetary wealth. It is definitely possible for a monetarily poor person to fit this bill, and I might say that such an individual is more likely to have already attained this quality rather than to be seeking to be like, or desiring to be, or envying after the poor in spirit. But if so, it is not because of their lack of wealth. Otherwise, the Gospel would have had a single command, sell everything and go beg on the street. To understand what it means to be poor in the context of this beatitude, we have to understand that, in spirit, peace. The kingdom isn't a race to the bottom, where the most destitute or the pinnacle of indigence is assured a seat at Jesus' right hand. Rather, it is the most complete and utter monarchy where the citizens are fully aware and openly accepting that they are absolutely dependent on their ruler for life, for success, for health, for deliverance from harm and evil. Jesus gives the analogy later in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as in other discourses, of children looking to their fathers, or more properly, their Father in heaven. We have all been children and remember times where we were unable to complete tasks, Or when we were unsuccessful at something, or when we were sick, and we had to rely on our earthly parents for care, shelter, and encouragement. This type of spiritual dependency, this is the type of spiritual dependency that Jesus is extolling and pronouncing as blessed. Neither is the kingdom nor the king harsh in this picture of spiritual destitution. Our God does not require us to be broken so that he may throw us a crust in a patronizing manner. He requires us to be broken precisely so that he may lift us up. In this way we are to emulate the beggar on the street who looks for assistance from more wealthy and advantaged persons to provide for them in their weakness. They approach others humbly and ask for what can be spared, most times expecting nothing more than pocket change, if anything at all. Just as the beggar knows intimately that they do not deserve even pocket change by their own merit we know that we do not deserve God's mercy, but we trust in his promises to deliver us from sin and suffering. So to be spiritually poor is to be utterly dependent on God for our life and as we approach death, for our health and through the trials of illness, for our well-being and in our suffering, for our successes and in the midst of our failures, to provide us peace and to see us through storms, because the fact of the matter is that we are this dependent, yet most of humanity regards all of these things as being totally in our control. Most of the ills, blasphemies, heresies, schisms, and just plain brokenness that has harried the human race throughout history is due to the deception that we are the captains of our own ship. Even being able to confess this is not the full antidote. I am intellectually aware of this reality, and yet when I pray for help, It is most often as if I am making a request for assistance with something that I could do on my own, but would be just a little bit easier with God's help, rather than begging for direction and intervention with something that is fundamentally beyond me. Why is it that I say that this is a permanent or eternal quality of citizens in the kingdom of heaven? For me, the largest clue for this is the closing of the statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit, utterly dependent on the reign of the triune God, possess the kingdom in real time. They do not await their citizenship. It is already granted to them. In their possession of the kingdom, they do not lose their quality of being poor in spirit. I want to quickly divert here and say that if you are a baptized Christian and struggle with pride of life, as I and many others do, then I am not saying that you are not a citizen yet. St. Paul makes quite clear that Christians are at different maturity levels in different areas. He also makes quite clear that those who confess the name and lordship of Jesus are counted among these blessed, because no one can make that confession except by the Holy Spirit. And none have the Holy Spirit without membership in the body of Christ. Indeed, by earnest confession and prayer, we make strides to put pride in ourselves to death and replace it with dependence on God and Christ. I believe that what in this life is a spiritual humility akin to monetary destitution and indigence will be transformed into a different kind of humility before God. The best picture of what this might look like uh, that I have is the example of King David during and after Absalom's rebellion. In the 16th chapter of 2 Samuel, David flees Jerusalem to avoid death at the hands of his son Absalom. As he is going on his way, a man from Saul's house comes out to curse and insult him. Men in David's entourage urge David to let them kill the man. But David tells them to leave the man alone, saying, Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today." David had both the right and might as God's anointed king over Israel to exact punishment on the man from Saul's house, but displayed a holy humility that set aside these qualities in favor of listening and looking for the provision of God. Later on, the same man who insulted and pronounced curses on David comes out as David makes his way back into Jerusalem after Absalom's death and defeat to beg forgiveness from the king. Once again, his entourage encourages David to have the man struck down for his treachery and disloyalty towards the Lord's anointed. Once again, David pronounces mercy on the man who has cursed him, as recounted in the 19th chapter of 2 Samuel. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? We of course see the same qualities from Jesus, who is a son of David according to the flesh, an inheritor in his flesh of the humility exemplified by his forebear, even as he gave David the grace to receive and exercise that humility as the author and sustainer of his life from the beginning of all creation. This, therefore, shows us what our spiritual destitution in this life will be transformed into. A noble humility, subject to the will of the Father, And confident in our assurances as children of God. I believe this is what our earthly humility will be transformed into, a quality that lets us acknowledge both our status as sons and daughters of God and the full richness of what that means to us, even as we are fully aware of our dependence on the provision of the Father. Whereas now we know our unworthiness and our spirits are poor because of that unworthiness, we will be counted worthy because of our Father's care and providence. Our spirits will therefore be rich in God and not of themselves. On our own account, they will be poor. They will still be poor, because what we have on our own is as a piece of tin before a sea of gold. Therefore, do not be worried that eternity in the kingdom will be one endless realization that I'm not worthy, Citizenship is predicated on the acceptance that I'm not God and that I was created for his purposes, not mine, which is its own kind of honor. The creator of the cosmos chose of his infinite will and power to create me in his image, to accomplish his purposes and desires that I will come into a relationship with him. But at the end of it all, being poor in spirit is utter realization that I am not God and that, whatever I may think, I am subject to his will for my life. How this is accomplished is through confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and seeking to live a life governed by his teachings—in essence, to be a disciple of Christ. As practical advice for how to accomplish this, I commend to you three of the disciplines that Jesus instructs his disciples on in the Sermon on the Mount—fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. In a few short weeks, we will begin the penitential season of Lent, which should rightly bring all three of these disciplines to mind. Each of these acts can and should serve to bend our stubborn flesh to the will of the Father so that we grow ever closer to attaining that blessed state. We fast not to show the world how pious we are, but to remind our flesh how dependent on God it is for sustenance. We pray not so that God will show us more favor than the godless person who is blinded to the works and majesty of God, though be assured, if we are faithful, we will have such favor, but so that our soul will rejoice in the provision of the Father and turn more and more readily to Him, not just in want, but in seasons of plenty as well. In giving alms, we do not show mercy to the poor that others think we are benevolent, but to acknowledge that all our wealth is straw before the treasures of God. Over the next eight weeks, I hope that you will join me at the 9 o'clock hour to learn more about the Beatitudes and how they serve as a lens through which to understand Jesus' moral teachings in the Gospel of Matthew. I pray that as we study these these sayings of Jesus, they will be led to seek after the qualities of life that our Lord has commanded to us. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.